I'd like to offer reflect some reflections this evening on what it might mean for us to embody a just awakening. And I'm really struck by the impact and the ongoing teachings that this COVID-19 pandemic has brought to us, many of them not easy teachings to receive in how our world, how our culture, how our communities function, respond, and sometimes don't function, don't respond in the ways that seem needed and appropriate. It's been such a challenging and for many tender time as we've moved through different phases of, of vulnerability, insecurity, being constrained in our movements and options. And I think the thing that stands out that seems so clear, so strong, so impactful is how our actions, individual and collective, how affected by each other we are, how deeply and profoundly, for better, for good, and for worse, for ill, we are so reliant upon each other for our safety, for our well-being. We are so impacted by each other in our choices, our actions, or our non-actions. And I, I feel, and I, I know you will join me in your own ways, in feeling for the vulnerability, the isolation, and the, the financial or material, physical insecurity impacting so many nearby, in our communities and perhaps our immediate circles, certainly within our country and around the world. This being touched, this feeling that we resonate with, that we are affected by is both an expression of one of the beautiful heart qualities we talk about, of, of compassion and the, the quality of a trembling heart that is resonant, that is touched. And it's also an expression of the, the wisdom and the understanding that is at the heart of our journey of awakening and equally what it means to embody an awakened heart. This truth of our non-separateness, the way in which we are so closely woven together with each other in the world, with so many different conditions, so many different factors that bear upon us, that uplift or burden our hearts, that support or challenge our lives. To 
this practice invites us to explore the truth of our non-separateness, that we do not arise independent from all we arise within and that arises around us. And that in this connected, non-separate world, which we are part of, we are not able to control what happens. But we always have the ability to influence and make a difference. And we learn this in the practice as we work with our hearts and our bodies and our minds. And it's so important that we contemplate, it seems to me, this interconnectedness and come back to it in different ways. This very breath that flows between us, even at the great distances that we might find ourselves from each other, physically or geographically, just now. Nonetheless, the air that circulates through the trees and the leaves and the grasses and the beings and the bodies of breathing creatures finds its way through the spaces of our living bodies equally as the spaces between them. And the nutrition, the sunlight, the, the life that nourishes our, our body and the, the care that nourishes our hearts. This is ultimately something shared and indivisible. Although expressing itself in so many myriad forms that may create the appearance of separateness. Our heart and the great heart of life in its awakened depth knows this intimate interconnectedness of all life and all things. And it points to a way that we can understand that what we are is not bound or defined by the content of our experience, by the details and particulars of our history. And yet all of this matters, our own and that of each other, because together it makes up the living matrix, the fluid, dynamic, aliveness through which this very existence is revealed and through which we grow and learn and awaken together. So in one sense, I contemplate myself as empty of individuality. And we can contemplate ourselves as not somehow completely separate. Maybe that's individuality is not the right word there. To contemplate ourselves is not arising in a way that is separate from what is around. So not discrete, 
not removed from. Having particularity, which perhaps might be confused with the word individuality. Having particularity. And to contemplate also that for myself, I am a child of my father. My father was a Holocaust survivor who lived through a concentration camp in Eastern Europe as a child. And this has an impact in his life and my life. And I'm also a child of my mother, who was a six-year-old Bengali girl in Calcutta, lived through the partition, the, part, the partitioning of India into two states amidst riots and massive dislocation of millions of people and communities. And again, this has an impact, this has an effect. And myself, I grew up as a, a young human being, far from my family's roots in New Zealand and what I now call the Deep South, with all that implies for a relatively narrow and uh, not entirely welcoming culture for those who are different. And I was the darkest skinned kid in the class. I'd like to talk this evening about both what it is to be the particular human being that we are and to live in the particular time that we live in as we are called collectively to awaken to the circumstance of our world, to the dynamic realities of our society and the ways that our society itself needs so deeply to wake up. This is not an individual journey, although we have our own unique path, of course, all of us, and rightly. And no two will look the same and no one of us can know what another's should be. But we can be deeply interested in what may be possible, in what may be needed, in what may be authentic for our own journey. And likewise for our shared collective journey. So I would like to speak a little this evening about climate justice, ecological justice, and social justice. And when I say I would like to, I would have to say I feel called to. I actually, at many levels, don't want to at all. I am for sure going to get it wrong in all sorts of ways. There's a vulnerability here for me in that. And I would ask your forgiveness for my limitations and any unskillfulness that may come. But I'm also aware that if I was to wait till I had perfect understanding and perfect skill, I would never speak. And just as I recognize that in Dharma teachings, we understand that there is such a thing as harmful, sometimes called wrong speech. There is also wrong silence. And so I 
have made the choice to speak here. And I hope that what I offer will contribute to our journeys of awakening our hearts and our world. And I want to start by kind of acknowledging for myself when I reflect upon where I am, how much I benefit from the physical comfort and security and the material affluence and privilege of a culture and economy that is in offering me this, consuming the limited resources of our planet. While climate destabilization due to greenhouse gas emissions and ecological devastation, ecosystem destruction and species extinction accelerate. I benefit from this harm that I see taking place. And I have chosen to take action in such ways as I felt able to raise public consciousness, to bring pressure to bear on the government with other like-minded human beings calling for action, calling for speaking of the truths of where we are on climate and ecological issues, the crisis of our time. And I've done this in using the vehicle of non-violent civil disobedience, breaking certain boundaries or rules of what is normally acceptable, what for myself had been previously unbroken, often involving being arrested, taken into custody, sometimes treated well, sometimes not, prosecuted, criminalized and punished according to law. And in my choosing to take such action, I'm also very aware that I'm a middle-aged, university-educated, heterosexual, cisgender man who passes as white, i.e. I'm a member of an immensely privileged demographic in this culture, in this country, in this world. And each of our situations is different. What does it mean to awaken our heart? To embody the awakening of our heart as we seek to free our hearts from the suffering born of greed and hatred, of ignorance and delusion. It seems to me we are equally and at the same time engaged in the, the practice of seeking to free our communities, our world, and all the hearts of all the beings from the harmful effects of this, these expressions of greed, of hatred, of ignorance, of so much that is tragic and it seems tragically not needed and yet so hard to prevent. so hard to change course. As I speak, I'm aware that my body is affected by these words. It may be 
for you that there is some impact also. I really invite you to listen equally to yourselves and your body as you sit here or in whatever posture you are with at this time, to listen equally to your inner experience, to make space if space is needed for what arises, to be kind if kindness could be helpful and supportive. And to just also remember that we're together in this conversation. Although for now I'm speaking, I'll make some time later where some of your voices, if you wish, can also be shared. But just noticing for now how it is for you. And perhaps just taking a moment to open to include the sense of the community, even if you're by yourself with your computer, to know also that you are together with others right now. And just that visual reminder or, or just a, a quiet inner remembrance maybe maybe useful, maybe skillful. As one of the very important foundation principles of Gaia House, we seek to welcome all people to retreats. And on this retreat, at the beginning, we just took a few moments to specifically say that each person who is here is welcome. Whatever your particularities of identity, of personal characteristic, of, of ethnic heritage, of sexual orientation, of gender identity, of ability, of health, of status, social status, of education. And there are, of course, more. I won't have remembered all of neurology. Whatever particular version or variety or expression of human life you find yourself to embody, it's our hope and our wish to try and let you know that we, and that I, sitting here, would hope that you feel welcome here, would wish you to feel welcome here. And I recognise as I say that, that this needs to be said precisely because, in fact, our social structures, norms, our culture, and the dynamics of how it works to live in our world, do not equally welcome, do not equally recognise, do not equally value and support all people of every kind. Patriarchy, racism, the devaluing of what appears different than others. So prevalent, so harmful, so painful in so many ways. And not to dismiss or disregard the many courageous and beautiful and powerful 
ways in which people of all communities are both standing up for each other and standing up for their own welfare and well-being, for respect and for honour, and yet within a context in which that is needed and required because of how it is. And the, the underlying materialism of our, of our culture, of our world, it's insatiable consumption and consuming, the need for more and more that is costing the earth, literally. The very earth we live on is the price we're paying collectively for our consumption, for the demand for more. And together with that consumption, this materialistic orientation we have, this loss of loss of a sense of a sacred relationship to life, where there's this, it seems, tragic inability so often to recognise the value in anything beyond its value as a material possession or what it gives through being consumed. Spiritual practice asks us to turn towards what sometimes confuses us, what sometimes unsettles us, what sometimes makes us feel profoundly uncomfortable. And to speak of these things, I find all of that arises. To know I don't speak of them as well as perhaps others could makes it even more uncomfortable in some way. And yet, there's also, I find, a relief when I hear others speak, and even if they speak clumsily, as I feel to, or skillfully, as many others do, I feel also, as well as the difficulty, I feel a relief. It's like, even if not spoken perfectly, we need to speak about these things. We need to consider these things. And I want to just name one particular, or maybe there's two, that just something new for me. And I'm just, in a sense, in recent years, I'd say probably the last five, six years, starting to really grapple with more fully the, the question of gender identity. And I have in my name pronouns to just let you know that, in fact, I identify as a male as a man, because otherwise it seems to reinforce an assumption that that's what one would assume. And I remember kind of being curious and a little delighted hearing from a dear friend many years ago that at university they used to wear a badge, and this is a also cisgender, which means someone who appears in the gender they, who identifies in the gender their body manifests. Um, but was, it was um, uh, so a, a heterosexual woman. And the badge she described wearing was one saying, why assume I'm heterosexual? And this was 30 years ago when that was probably a much more common uh, unquestioned assumption. And for many of us, of course, we'll find, and I sometimes find my habitual assumption is that too. If I don't catch and check it, I realize, no, 
I don't know that. I can't know that. Unless someone tells me, I have to assume there are possibilities. With gender identity likewise. And having had contact with some people whose experience of gender identity is profoundly different than my own, which I, I can't claim to fully comprehend or understand because I don't have the known experience. What I do know and see is that, oh, I make assumptions that I have to learn and I wish to learn to stop making. And so without that creating any expectation for someone else, certainly not in this context, though in other contexts where working with such dynamics is, is, is very much part of the process, then the naming of one's pronouns, which some of us have chosen to do here, is just because it just helps us remember not to make an assumption. And it's not that you're required to do that. You don't have to reveal where that is for you because that's for you to choose or not. But again, for me, there's a kind of vulnerability in doing that. And there's also something that feels really important. And there's, uh, just in this context, wanting to name for me, I, uh, I was really aware, as I said at the beginning of the uh, retreat, so was, you know, having an image of an enlightened Buddha, classic sort of generally represented in a masculine form, and then the enlightened Tara, feminine form, beautiful, and I was at that moment thinking, I don't actually have a Kuan Yin behind me, and I wished I did. In fact, we have a beautiful Kuan Yin, but she lives in Catherine's um, office. I bought it as a present for her, her, she, her, it, them, for Catherine some years ago. And Kuan Yin it's often seen as manifesting in a feminine, but equally also in a masculine as Avalokiteshvara, the enlightened embodiment of compassion. <coughs> in the Buddhist tradition is, in fact, a gender-fluid being. I didn't really understand that when I first encountered I thought, oh, there's just two options. But in fact, no, it seems to me there's something more here. And I don't have the depth of understanding and this isn't necessarily the right time to go further into that exploration, but just sometimes naming that there's more here, that our, our blindness, our, our, and even blindness, okay, so for years I translated ignorance because ignorance seems pejorative as blindness until I had a very kind and wise feedback from a person who is differently able in, in, in their visual capacity. You said, actually, that kind of makes it as if blindness is a negative thing. So I try to find another word for it. I don't always get it the first time. I usually catch myself. It's like there's an unconsciousness going on that we're needing to attend to, sometimes translated as ignorance. There's something that we need to become conscious of because that unconsciousness is the foundation condition from which suffering flows. And this is at the heart of the Buddha's teaching. This is why we cultivate presence and wakefulness to bring consciousness, to see clearly what we have not yet up till now been able to see, to help each other in that seeing. So together, 
we can wake up. And just again, to mention that, and this is again personal for me because um, we're just starting to understand what it means to recognize neurodiversity. Some of us have brains that work quite differently than others. And myself being mildly dyslexic, I've kind of always had a sense of this. But it's not something that probably stands out apart from that I scramble sometimes words and names and numbers. It doesn't hold me back in a great way. I don't think. But my sister was recently diagnosed just in her early 50s as autistic. And it's been a great and profound relief for her to understand why and how it is she functions that's so different from so many people. And, uh, and to understand, oh, we are so different. And each version has its own challenges and its own blessings. To understand the emptiness of separateness is not to dissolve or take away the particularities and the difference of our individual expressions, but to understand there are different dimensions and ways in which we can enter into the truth that we explore and that require their own wisdom as we learn to handle them. And in talking about these territories of of, of justice, of ecological justice, the need for justice for ecology, the inclusion of living systems in our care, the need for justice in our society to include all of our communities, all expressions of humanity to receive the support and the value and the respect that we would wish for ourselves. There's so much here that is dukkha, that is suffering, that is hard to bear. And I find this phrase so useful. One of my teachers, Ajahn Suchito, English Buddhist monk, venerable practitioner, and very kind-hearted being, it seems to me. He talks about, and I now find myself, I talk about that sense of what is hard to bear. And sometimes, again, just invite you to stop, to go gently here with yourself, to breathe. If we find it hard in some way, not easy, not comfortable, perhaps because it feels painful, perhaps because it feels confusing and it doesn't make sense. And so far as that is born of my own lack of skill, again, I'm, I'm sorry. And as much as I feel called to speak about this, It's not just coming from me. And I'd like to just share a little, a story 
of uh, something that took place for me a few years ago when I was last in New Zealand, I think three, almost three years ago now. And I was walking in the mountains with some friends for several days where we were going to one of my most favorite and beloved places in the South Island in the high mountains, a place called Welcome Flats where there are natural thermal pools at the snow level, so you can sit and steam in water while the, the, the crisp, icy environment and that the, the beautiful mountains form the backdrop and the surrounding. And on this particular journey, it was the first time I'd been back in this place, which I love for, I think, uh, 25 years or more. I met in a family of, of the indigenous people of New Zealand, a Maori whanau, or family. And was really deeply touched by the way they'd come there as a, as a spiritual journey to reconnect with their ancestral land and values and the sacred intentions of their of their community and sharing with the 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 elder of the group Nicaragua Nicaragua his name was I don't pronounce it I don't speak Tireo very well at all sadly the language of the Maori people but Nicaragua I was so touched with his his wish to introduce the children of his family to the the spirit of his people in the land. And at one point, I, I, I just felt overwhelmed with gratitude. I said, I want to give you something. But we're carrying backpacks in the mountains. If I give him anything, he has to carry it. That's not very kind. It's not really sort of what I wanted to do. But I said, I just, I want to give you something. But obviously, I don't want to give you something because you'd have to carry it. And he said, you know, there is something you could give me after reflecting a little while. At first he was hesitant and he said, yes, there is something you could give me. He said, I'd like you to tell your children that our children love them. And I felt immediately the power of his words. I don't have children. But I knew straight away he was not just talking about any physical children I might have, genetic offspring of mine, but the children of my community as a, a Pākehā, as I would be known in New Zealand, which is someone of European descent. And for myself, I'm three-quarter European, so predominantly European, and certainly appear European, so I'm Pākehā. He said, please tell your children, the children of my people, is who he meant clearly, that my that our children love them. And I felt that sense of how we don't know that for sure, that the children of his people, the Maori people, the indigenous people of New Zealand might love our children. So he said this, he said, tell your children that our children love them. And he said, He went on to say, and could you please ask your children 
to love my children. And my heart broke with the tenderness and the rightness of the request and the truth of the tragic need for that to be asked for. Because so often the children of my people, my children do not love the children of his people or his people. And this is something to turn towards, it seems to me, to turn towards. Just as we have turned towards those tender places in our hearts and our bodies and our lives, in all the different ways we've encountered them in our practice here on retreat and in our lives, so too to turn to the tender places in the lives of others that are part of our life, that are the tender places in our culture and our community that we are part of and that are part of what we are. To live this awakening heart, to embody this awakening heart. We ask this. And we've seen, and I'm sure many of you followed with both tenderness and hope and also distress and sorrow, the both beautiful emergence and strength and power of the Black Lives Matter movement in recent weeks and months, and the deep tragic pain and sorrow of the reason why it is needing to be what it is. When I spoke a couple of nights a couple of evenings ago about what it is that gets left out. It's not just a question for our practice inwardly and personally. It's the question for our community and our society. What gets left out? Who gets left out of our care, our support, our value systems? And again, I just invite you to breathe. Take a moment to just remember we're together. And I hope I'm finding a way to speak that is within what's something you can receive that's okay. But I don't know for sure if that's the case. And it's actually way harder to do this on Zoom than to do it in person, to sit in a room together. But this is what we have for now. And I don't think, although there are perhaps some who may, and maybe amongst us who are not so sure about the reality or veracity of what I'm suggesting, and that's okay, I guess. I myself don't think it's a question of opinion. I think this is clear from the social science, from the uh, ecological science, and from our own senses, we can see so shocking, so saddening, so painful to witness via the video clip 
the, the callous murder of George Floyd at the hands of law enforcement officers sworn to serve, to protect, and to know that this is not, and tragically not, anything like an isolated occurrence. In our society too, I, after one of the protests I was arrested on in London, I was in Brixham prison, Brixham police cells for a night. And I came out of there really comfortably, really fine. It was not a difficult night. Sometimes it's been hard to spend a night or two in a prison cell, in a police cell. But on this occasion it wasn't. But I came out of it knowing it was Brixham police station and that not so long before I was there, a, a young black man had gone in alive and come out dead from one of those cells. I don't know exactly what happened. But I know that it's much less likely that that would happen to me. And our own senses likewise reveal the intensifying droughts, fires and floods, the storms afflicting our world as rising sea levels and famine born of our changing and destabilizing climate lead to the multiplying of refugees, climate refugees seeking new homes. Again, I hope it's okay that we go here together. I kind of trust the power of our practice. And for each of us, we also have to know and be able to say, if it feels like enough, it's okay to just turn more towards your body, yourself, to really listen to what you need. It's really important here that as we turn towards this kind of territory in whatever way feels right for you, that we understand, and I hope I can say this in a way we can really hear, that it's natural and not inappropriate to feel sorrow and remorse for these things that are part of our world that we, and certainly I, will own. I'm part of the creation of, or contribute to, have been complicit in. But it's really different than the oppressive and unhelpful experience of guilt or blame, of somehow attacking ourselves or others, judging or putting ourselves down understanding the unconsciousness that runs through our hearts and our minds until we've woken up, runs through our culture and our communities until we've all together 
done the work of waking up together. It's heartbreaking to contemplate the suffering, to contemplate the harm. And it's so important that we allow ourselves to feel into the sadness and the sorrow and the remorse without judgment, without burdening or attacking ourselves in judgment, in, in guilt, in condemnation. Because the sorrow the sadness, the remorse, that's a natural response to seeing such conditions is on behalf of ourselves, but also on behalf of our forebears and those of our current generations who did not or do not understand, cannot or could not see as much as we might be able to see now. And equally at the younger versions of ourselves who did not know and understand so much as we might know and understand now. And recognizing that the version of ourself that we are now does not understand as much, cannot see as deeply as we may one day be able to. And because we have that capacity, we, we seek to understand, to investigate, to learn, to grow in ourselves and together with this. And it's so important that we nourish ourselves also that we engage in these practices of loving kindness and compassion of forgiveness and tenderness that we establish pathways to the deeper dimensions of our heart our body our being and this very existence that are rooted in the very depths of life in the heart of what is most true. It is unwavering in this commitment to truth. And feels the roots in the depth of the earth, the stillness in the depths of the ocean, that can hold all of this too. That has space for all of this and this, whatever this might be for you in this moment, together. To connect with each other, with nature, with where there is beauty and creativity is essential. And to know this is something we must do together. We ourselves will not and cannot do it alone. But in the depth of our practice and our heart's wisdom, we come to know this connectedness, this non-separateness, that means we would not wish to leave anything out, to not leave anyone out, to not leave any part of ourself or another outside of the field of our care. And that we would aspire to finding ways to act 
in alignment with this. To seek justice for all members of our human communities and equally all members of the living community and the very living systems themselves. Inner work and outer action born of our deepest love of this life. None of us will live forever. Not me, not you. Even this precious, fragile, blue-green planet is not going to last forever. And yet everything within that, each expression, by that very not-foreverness is so clearly and profoundly revealed in its preciousness and its value. We are not here forever. The question is, how will we live as human beings who are not here forever? But who care deeply for our children and the children of this world, for this world and the life within it. What will be our offering to this life, to this world, and to the stream of shared human spirit that pours through the sacred and timeless living present? What will be our offering to this that we are? that is bound by no thing and yet intimate with and touched by all things. How can our life, how can our life honour this? I don't have an answer to that question for anyone, not necessarily even for myself. It's the question that's important. And to trust that there are as many different ways that can be expressed as there are ways, as there are beings. And for some to sit quietly and contemplatively working with the roots of greed and hatred in one's own heart is a gift to the world that is immense and their calling. And for another it may be to step out into the street, to stand up in the community, to call for justice, to stand with the oppressed and the vulnerable. And this, this is the sacred expression of this life. And my own sense is that these two support each other and nourish each other. And I find them strangely almost the same at a certain point. I've spoken a lot and more than I'd hoped. I'd hoped I would speak less. I want to invite you to take a breath again. 
feel into your body. To sense the people around you. This community of practitioners. And the wilder, the wider world, and perhaps the wilder world, wilder world, but I just need to, to open that sense beyond just our group here, to include those people you feel connected to, supported by, those people you care for and feel cared for by, and all those beings and people who you may be concerned for. May our practice here together in this retreat and in our lives, may it serve and support our own well-being and the welfare of all beings. May there be peace. May there be justice. May there be well-being in all directions for all that live. May our lives and our communities be an offering to this. So thank you again for your presence, for your attention, for your practice.